Good morning, everybody. It's not as nice weather as it was exactly a year ago today. <laughs> I wonder if you can remember what we were doing a year ago today. I can. It was that Sunday when we made that big decision. Well, you didn't quite make the decision that day, but it was the day I came and preached for the, the job. And now a year on, you're probably thinking, oh no, what did we do? <laughs> but there we go. It's great to be together. It's great to worship God. And let's hear some words from the psalmist. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both highborn and lowborn find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them to drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of light. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you. Your righteousness to the upright in heart. Wonderful God, the psalmist calls us to praise you with gladness. To sing joyfully with merry tunes and tapping feet. To chuckle delightedly as we enjoy the humour of your creation. To celebrate your goodness to us and to our forebears in times gone by. To enter the party atmosphere of heaven as we worship. Yet we have made worship a solemn thing. Fearing the abandon of pleasure-filled expression. Wary of doing or of not doing what is right in the eyes of the church. As if it were somehow she, not you, who commands our attention. Where we have been stiff or stayed. Disapproving or reluctant. Forgive us. And set us free. Generous God, the psalmist calls us to approach you with thanksgiving, to be glad that we have health enough to sing, to laugh, to be here today, to be grateful for bread and bananas, for burgers and beans, and for all the food we enjoy. To count the many blessings that fill our lives each day. To marvel at the promise of hope at the heart of our faith. <clears throat> Yet we can make thankfulness a trivial thing. Mere words that trip off the lips. A formality that seems incredibly religious. As if it were right words not right lives that you require. Where we have been insincere or glib, complacent or ungrateful, forgive us and set us free. Eternal God, the psalmist reminds us that your faithfulness and love never end. Help us to know ourselves loved, restored and forgiven 
then help us to live out our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. The first reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 25. Lord, you are my God. I will honor you and praise your name. You have done amazing things. You have faithfully carried out the plans you made long ago. You have turned cities into ruins and destroyed their fortifications. The palaces which our enemies built are gone forever. The people of powerful nations will praise you. and You will be feared in the cities of cruel nations. The poor and the helpless have fled to you and have been safe in times of trouble. You give them shelter from storms and shade from the burning heat. Cruel enemies attack like a winter storm, like drought in a dry land. But you, Lord, have silenced our enemies. You silence the shouts of cruel people as a cloud cools a hot day. Here on Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a banquet for all the nations of the world, a banquet of the richest food and the finest wine. Here he will suddenly remove the cloud of sorrow that has been hanging over all the nations. The Sovereign Lord will destroy death forever. He will wipe away the tears from everyone's eyes and take away the disgrace his people have suffered throughout the world. The Lord himself has spoken. When it happens, everyone will say, He is our God. We have put our trust in him, and he has rescued us. He is the Lord. We have put our trust in him, and now we are happy and joyful because he has saved us. And the second reading is taken from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 23. One Sabbath, Jesus went to eat a meal at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and people were watching Jesus closely. A man whose legs and arms were swollen came to Jesus, and Jesus asked the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Does our law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? But they would not say anything. Jesus took the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to them, If any one of you had a son or an ox that happened to fall in a well on a Sabbath, would you not pull them out at once on the Sabbath itself? But they were not able to answer him about this. Jesus noticed how some of the guests were choosing the best places, so he told this parable to all of them. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. It could happen that someone more important than you has been invited, and your host, who invited both of you, would have to come and say to you, let him have this place. Then you would be embarrassed and have to sit in the lowest place. Instead, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that your host will come to you and say, come on up, my friend, to a better place. This will bring you honor in the presence of all the other guests, For all those who make themselves great will be humbled, and those who humble themselves 
will be made great. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and in this way you will be paid for what you did. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they are not able to pay you back. God will repay you on the day the good people rise from death. When one of the men sitting at table heard this, he said to Jesus, How happy are those who will sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus said to him, There was once a man who was giving a great feast to which he invited many people. When it was time for the feast, he sent his servant to tell his guests, Come, everything is ready. But they all began one after another to make excuses. The first one told the servant, I I bought a field and must go and look at it. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I've bought five pairs of oxen and and, am on my way to try them out. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I've just got married, and for that reason I cannot come. The servant went back and told all this to his master, and the master was furious and said to his servant, Hurry out to the streets and alleys of the town and bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Soon the servant said, Your order has been carried out, sir, but there is room for more. So the master said to the servant, Go out to the country roads and lanes and make people come in so that my house will be full. We are at the start of the West End Festival and lots and lots of people looking for entertainment and education and excitement, or all three, will wander past our doorstep over the next three weeks. A few of them might even be brave enough to come inside. The title for today's service attempts to pick up some of the anticipation and expectation of a festival. Now, it will be, in some sense, a party. And the two readings that we we heard use one of the most powerful biblical images there is, that of a banquet. In fact, the eschatological banquet, the banquet of eternity, towards which our hope is focused, the party to end all parties when the kingdom comes in all its fullness, when there is a new heaven and a new earth. I really enjoyed the festival debate yesterday, once I'd finished trying to sort out the technology and failing miserably. Um, And there were some very interesting things raised in that, which actually had resonance with a lot that we are about as Christians Lots of questions were asked, and I wrote some of them down, and I've lost my bit of paper. Here we go. Who is the festival for? What is the purpose of the festival? What are the boundaries of the festival? And in amongst all that was said was something that I'm still pondering. I wish I was one of those people who could remember things verbatim, but I'm not. But there was something to the effect of an art festival or an arts festival. 
allows creative people to use a setting, a city or a village or a town as a kind of backdrop for their creativity. And as people see that, it awakens their own inherent creativity. We walk through the West End regularly and we don't see it anymore. We don't marvel at what it is all about. And yet somehow in these few weeks, we get a refreshed and invigorated sense of our own creativity. Or that was one of the ideas. And I think that's a good one to ponder. I'm not going to talk about it today because I'd already written my sermon, so there you go. But worth thinking about. I want us to concentrate solely on the passage from Luke's Gospel, basically because there is just so much richness in those two readings that I can't do them both justice in the time we have. Jesus is invited for a Sabbath meal at the house of a Pharisee. And in the course of that event, he heals somebody, he sees how people behave and offers some sort of advice, he has a little conversation with his host, and he tells a story about a banquet. So let's just spend some time looking at that amazingly busy Sabbath as described for us by Luke. It was Sabbath, and Jesus was invited round by a prominent Pharisee to eat bread, the challah bread that we have here. Words we've heard many, many times, but hang on a minute. This is a prominent Pharisee, a senior religious leader who would be respected and maybe even admired And he's invited this itinerant preacher to come down and share food on the Sabbath day. The day when no one was permitted to work. The day when Jesus, as an itinerant, probably didn't have anywhere to go to have a meal. And he couldn't go to a cafe because it wouldn't be open. It may not sound that significant to us that somebody would invite you round for a Sabbath meal. But actually, it was very significant in that culture because there was an expectation, even a honour binding, that if somebody invited you, you must invite them back. It wasn't just a nice thing to do to invite them back. It was an expectation. If I invite you for dinner, then you'll invite me for dinner. And that was how it went. So I actually wonder, was this Pharisee just a teeny bit radical. This is a prominent Pharisee. And he invites round for Sunday lunch, effectively, this itinerant preacher who can't invite him back because he's got nowhere to invite him back to. The honour code can't be maintained in this situation. And I wonder if we leap on a little bit If what Jesus says to the Pharisee is not telling him off, but actually encouraging him to go the next step. You've been quite brave in inviting me round for lunch, because I can't invite you back, but take it a step further. The real challenge would be to invite those who would cause your nice, polite Pharisee neighbours to go... You know, the people who are not 
so nice. Poor people, they can't invite you back. Crippled people, lame people, blind people. Go the next step. Be a little bit more radical in what you're doing. I wonder, might that just be what Jesus was saying to him? As we read that passage, it seems that most of the guests at the meal, if not all of them, were Pharisees and teachers of the law. Educated, upright, religious people capable of handling complex ideas and who devoted all their time and energy to trying to work out what it meant to live a life that pleased God. So when the man with the swollen arms and legs, as the good news renders it, the man with palsy, as some other translations render it, arrive, they watched very carefully to see what Jesus said and did. But they were also trying to work out where they were going to sit for their meal. There's something going on here about self-importance and real worth. Here is a sick man, and Jesus heals him. And the theologians of the day can't answer the question about the legality of healing on the Sabbath. And so Jesus asked them a rhetorical question. If your child fell into a well on the Sabbath, would you leave them there and realize that they might drown? Or would you pull them out? If your ox or donkey fell into a pit, maybe deep and dangerous, would you abandon it? Or would you go and rescue it? Of course, the implication is that you just wouldn't think twice. Your child is very important to you. Your animal is very important to you. And the man with the palsy is very important in the eyes of God. And so with Jesus' words still ringing in their ears, they go off to work out where they're going to sit. And and it's quite an amusing image, isn't it, of these men in their finery jostling as they try to get the best place. And and I'm more important than him, so I'll go up a bit. And I'm I'm still more important than him, so I'll, I'll go up a bit further up. These were earnest people, but they wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted people to think, well, he is more honored than him. And I wonder if Jesus is bemused or amused as he tells the story of the wedding banquet to give them some advice on etiquette and the avoidance of embarrassment. It seems not that honour is to be rejected, because it may come, but actually to strive for it is wrong. Quite how the demoted guests in the parable might have felt is a moot point. But for these theologians sharing a Sabbath lunch, the message was quite clear. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. 
I was wondering, as I read that, if maybe we've gone a bit the other way. You know, we all go, oh, I'm not as important. No, I'm even less important. And in an equally unhelpful way, because we're so scared of being seen as self-righteous that we come artificially self-deprecating. There is something about knowing our own true worth, and both extremes are unhealthy. So they all settled down to enjoy their meal, and it would have had to have bread. It's a rule that Jews must eat bread on the Sabbath, and it would have included undoubtedly some wine. And somebody called out a very holy-sounding remark, blessed is the one who will eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. Thinking of the, the, the banquet that Isaiah spoke about. And I'm not sure what this person thought Jesus would say, but we thought, very good, that's so holy. But no, Jesus told a story. Quite good at telling stories was our Jesus. It's one of two banquet parables, but they're not the same story. They're similar, but not the same. The one in Matthew's gospel is part of the Holy Week narrative, whereas the one that Luke tells is in the context of a meal during the course of his ministry. And just like the parable of the sower that we thought about last week, it's a familiar tale from which many sermons have been preached over the years. And what I'd like us to do today is to try and think about the servant in the story. Something that seems needs us to appreciate this cultural context in which the story is told. We need to understand what the role of the servant was to make sense of it. When a wealthy person planned a banquet, they would send out the invitations ahead of time. And then when the day came and everything was ready, a servant would be sent out to fetch the people and say, well, come on then, it's all ready, we can have the party. They didn't hope for RSVPs in the way that we do. They didn't have sign-up sheets by the door and hope to goodness that somebody would write their name on that they would send out a servant to go and gather in the guests. So the servant does as he or she is told and goes to each of the invited guests. And the person says, as we've heard, well, I can't come, I've just bought some land. I can't come, I've just bought some oxen. It might be a car in our day, mightn't it? I just want to go and try out my new car, so I'm not coming to your party. I've just got married. And if we're honest, those kind of reasons probably seem quite reasonable not to go to a party. Something really important has happened. But how would it feel for the servant? You've got to go back and tell your master, who's got this amazing banquet ready, that no one is going to come. I kind of imagine the master looking at the tables, groaning under the food, and understandably rather angry. And so says to the servant, we'll just go out, around about where we live, into the town, and bring in who you can find. Poor people, lame people, crippled people, blind people. I wonder if at that point, the people around that table thought, hang on a minute, didn't he just say that a few minutes ago? But the servant in the story goes out and gathers in all these odd-bod people, and they come. 
But you know what? The, the banquet hall isn't full. There's plenty more space and more people could come in. So no doubt rather scared at this time, the servant goes back to the master and says, you know, there's still some space. We could still have some more people. And the master says, well, go out into the country roads, go out into the lanes, go out everywhere and bring them in that the house should be full. So often when we hear this story, we think about the guests and we think about those who choose not to come and we say, well, they're very worldly and very greedy. And we think about those who are gathered who we usually think of as being sinful rather than socially disadvantaged. But what if we put ourselves in the role of the servant who knows there's a wonderful party and we have been sent by the master, by Jesus, to bring them in? It seems to me that there are three aspects to the command that are given, not in a hierarchical sense, but just that that's the way it goes in the story. You have to tell it in some order. Go and tell the obvious people that all is ready. The nice people. The people like us. The people we think are important and valuable, our family and our friends. They might reject the invitation, but we must offer it. To go and gather those who are near at hand, but are not the obvious guests. The people who live near us, or who pass along the streets outside us, but perhaps discomfort us a bit. Those who are poor, or sick or marginalised, or do drugs, or alcohol, or did, or maybe work after hours, or whatever it is that kind of, hmm, we don't quite like. People who might never, ever contribute financially or intellectually, who may never have the social skills to express gratitude or to communicate love, But people who, like the man that Jesus healed that Sabbath, are just as valuable in God's sight as our own family members. And then to go beyond and compel the people to come in. That's what it says in the Bible. Make them come in. No is not an answer that this story is going to take. The master expects people to be brought in to the banquet. Our mission, our outreach, our evangelism, it should be expectant, not hesitant. We are sent, like that servant, to gather people in, not to a building, but to a banquet, a party. Not to an organisation or an institution, but to a communion are sharing together. And not to a club where attendance is optional and membership renewable, but to a relationship which is challenging and fulfilling.
The next couple of weeks, we've got some exciting and interesting events planned as part of the West End Festival. And they are a great opportunity to go out to somebody and say, would you like to come? Could be a family, could be a neighbour, could be a friend, could be somebody who's walking past outside ten minutes before it's due to start. Shock horror. And they might say no, and that's okay, that's their choice. But they just might say yes and begin to taste something of the banquet that is offered by Jesus and is the promise of eternity, the heavenly banquet prepared for all. As soon as Luke has told us this parable, he moves on in the way that the gospel writers do to something else, a different day, a different event. And we don't know what impact any of that had on those people. We really don't. But we've got a choice. We can go away and forget about it and think, well, that was nice, Katrina, but you know what? So what? Or we can actually take it on board and play our part in gathering others in to share the banquet. I was at the minister's conference this week, as many of you know, and like all these things, it was a mixed blessing. But one important thing was said in that 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 stuck with me. One of the speakers was asked what he thought was important for churches to be doing, and he said, well, I'd love it. I'd really love it if everybody would share the gospel with people. But that's not going to happen. The best thing after that is that we all become good inviters. We learn to invite other people to the places, to the events, to the celebrations that will allow them to experience gospel. We have a choice. We can go away and back to our homes and have our pizza or our roast beef or our sausages or whatever it is. Or we can, like the servant, go out and gather people in to God's banquet. And so let's come to God now with our prayers for others. Let's pray. Lord God of hosts, who is always more ready to receive our prayers than we are to offer them, We come before you now to pray for the world you love and deem so precious that you sent Jesus to bring salvation. We pray for powerful people, those who have opportunities to study and whose words shape the world in which we live, asking that you would enable them to balance healthy self-esteem with gracious humility. Help us neither to set them on pedestals, nor to delight in their frailty when their humanity leads them to errors of judgment. May wisdom shape their thinking and compassion their decision-making. We pray for vulnerable people, those who through illness, disability or disadvantage are marginalised by the society of which we are part. Asking that you would help them to know their intrinsic worth 
without resenting the lives of others. Help us neither to see them as objects of pity or scorn, nor as incapable of determining their own path through life. May hope shape their thinking and liberation their decision-making. We pray for ordinary people, those whose lives pass by unobserved, with adequate provision and average health, asking that they would grow in self-esteem and mutual respect. Help us to recognise ourselves among them, seeing ourselves accurately as neither better nor worse than we are, yet each one of immense value in your sight. May knowledge of your love shape our thinking and Christian discipleship our decision-making. We pray for all who will visit the West End of Glasgow in the coming days. Those seeking escape from routine. Those seeking entertainment. Those seeking new understanding. Those seeking to be part of something new. And we pray for those who will make it all happen those who host and steward, those who perform, teach and speak, those who make tea and those who clear up afterwards. May each one find new insights and new hope to sustain them into the future. And may we be bold to obey your command to gather in more and more people to the joyful feast that is your kingdom. We offer our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.